Compared to many parts of the world, it used to be said that our weather was fairly benign. Um, well, I think we've all had a fairly rude awakening of late, certainly over recent years, haven't we? And we've seen some incredible things. Storm Kieran, a uh, hundred miles an hour plus winds at Channel Isles, south coast of England. You've seen the pictures on the news. Hurricane force winds, torrential rain, huge waves, widespread flooding, buildings damaged. And we're seeing that more increasingly, aren't we? Uh, as it happens, uh, two or three weeks ago now, I was in Iceland, uh, thanks to the generosity of Might and Church, um, a gift that I gave to Alien and myself as, we, as I retired some while ago now. But um, we chose to go to Iceland um, for a particular reason. But it was incredible there. We were actually witness to 80 to 100 mile an hour winds while we were there, not out in them, I hasten to add, but the sort of wind that closes roads and blows minibuses on their side. Phenomenal power in the elements, the wind, incredible. And it's spectacular, isn't it, to see that power unleashed and a reminder that the natural world can often be dangerous and hostile. Well, such was a great windstorm that we're going to read about now in Mark chapter 4. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 4, and I'm just going to read the paragraph from verse 35 onwards. It'll be a page 1006 in the church Bibles. So Mark 4, from verse 35. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples... Let us go over to the other side, the other side of the lake. And leaving the crowds behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, we're told that the Sea of Galilee was notorious for sudden storms. Some of you may be more familiar with that region of the world than I am. But um, the the Sea of Galilee is located 200 metres or so below sea level, so very low, surrounded by steep hills, mountain ranges to the east and west. And often cold air is drawn down into the Jordan Valley and it collides with the warm air over the the sea and produces incredible turbulence and dangerous storms. But it would appear that this storm was the mother of all storms. It was incredibly fierce. Indeed, some have supposed that it may even have a demonic component. The word that Jesus uses to still the storm in verse 39 is the same word he uses in it dealing with an unclean spirit in Mark chapter 1. Well, be that as it may, this is an incredibly powerful storm. Matthew, in his account, 
uses the word seismos, that word in Greek, seismic, earthquake. There was a shaking in the water. The boat is filling with water and there's a danger of it being submerged. And if it does submerge and capsize, well, that's certainly life-threatening. There's every chance those in the boat would drown. Now, of course, several of the disciples were experienced fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They fished the lake. They knew the lake. Presumably, they knew how to handle a boat as well. And yet, even they, even they, were filled with terror and were panicking along with the others, fearing they'd perish. And in their distress, they wake Jesus. And what happens next is an incredible miracle. Jesus addresses the wind and waves, and the storm is stilled. Now, this incident's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm sure most of you here, I won't assume everyone, but most of you will be familiar with this story. I'm sure that Noah and Martha have all had it, already had it taught to them in their young people's classes. Familiar, yes, but there are still things in this passage that I think have the capacity to stir us tonight. We could approach it in many different ways. We can look at it under many different headings. I'm sure you've heard many sermons do just that. But tonight, I wanted just to address the two questions. There are three questions in the passage, one by Jesus. But the disciples have two questions. I just want to touch on them briefly tonight. Two questions. The first, verse 38, addressed to Jesus. Don't you care? Don't you care? And then in verse 41, well, they'll speak to one another, who is this? And we'll spend probably most of the time on that second question. But it's good to start with this question in verse 38. It's an understandable question, isn't it? Here they are in this boat about to sink. Jesus is sleeping they're struggling. They're out of, their, out of their depth totally, literally. And Jesus is asleep. Now, no doubt he's exhausted after a busy day's ministry. You can read about that earlier in the passage, before this passage. But they rouse him with great alarm. Don't you care if we drown? And they may well have added, Jesus, this is all your fault, by the way. It's you who dragged us into this storm. Verse 35, it was Jesus' idea to go over to the other side. Who knows? Peter and these other experienced fishermen, did they sense perhaps a turning in the weather? May they have been somewhat concerned about launching out at that particular time? We don't know. But it's Jesus who's leading them into this situation. Indeed, following Jesus has led them into a life-threatening situation. Now, some of you might have been on a boat in a violent storm. I ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure some of you have been in fairly terrifying situations on boats or ships. Probably been quite ill as a result. I know I have. Um, my wife forbids me to speak about it. But um, if not specifically being in a boat in a torrential storm, I guess most of us can relate to the vulnerability the disciples are feeling, can't we? Something that arises we never foresaw. Something that happened very quickly, very suddenly. Some frightening circumstance. Maybe some financial crisis that hits us. Maybe a concern over a family member. 
maybe personal, physical, or mental health, a diagnosis we weren't anticipating. And suddenly our world is thrown into upheaval. Hostility may be faced at work or a relationship breakdown. As I say, some frightening circumstance that arises suddenly. I don't know you, but I know many at Martin Church who could certainly identify with that. And it's worse than anything you've faced before. In the past, you may have been able to handle it with your own skill, but not this one. It's far too big, and we feel utterly helpless and overwhelmed. Does that describe you tonight? What makes it worse is that we're doing our utmost to follow Jesus. It's confusing, isn't it? We could understand if we were being wayward or sinful, like Jonah who fled from the Lord and ended up in a storm. But we're trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to do all we can to to do what he says, and yet we find ourselves in the most terrible circumstances. Why is this happening? And like the disciples here, what we're going through might cause us to doubt whether the Lord really cares. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, you wouldn't say that tonight, would you? You're a good evangelical believer. But I wonder how many of us, that thought may have passed through your mind even this week, really. Do you really care about me, Lord? Well, yes, he does. Yes, he does. And we see that as we read on. Verse 39, Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. Just two words in the original language. Quiet. Be still. And there was a great calm. Remarkable coincidence, isn't it? No. It's no coincidence, isn't it? Because not only does the wind immediately stop, and wind does stop, but the waves calm immediately. Now, I've used this illustration before. It's fairly trivial, forgive me, but some of you here can probably relate to it. You have young children, or maybe grandchildren. And uh, you know what bath time's like? You know, your child starts to move around, the water starts slopping, and you think, oh no, any minute, any minute, it's over the top. So you try and stop your child from moving. Does that solve the situation? Well, no, because no, it, it takes more than that, doesn't it? The water will continue to slop around and uh, inevitably sometimes does go over the top. Trivial, yes, but if you, the waves of the sea don't just stop when the wind does. No, no coincidence. This is an incredible miracle. So Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message, the wind ran out of breath, the sea became as smooth as glass. Now, uh, I'm, I'm sure as you read the passage, we can see that's implied. Now look at that picture on your screen. Apologies to those who may be listening on audio later, but that phenomenal wave, I don't know what waves are like on the Sea of Galilee. It's pretty impressive, that, isn't it? A bit like the ones I saw in Iceland, actually. But imagine, smooth as glass in a moment, Two words from the lips of Jesus. Incredible. But then in verse 40, Jesus goes on to rebuke the disciples. Having rebuked the wind and waves, verse 40. Why are you so afraid, he says? Do you still have no faith? I often wonder, you know, about the tone of voice of Jesus in these parables and stories and Was it, oh, for goodness sake, haven't you got any faith? Or maybe it was a bit more gentle. Exasperation. Oh, you still haven't got it, have you? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
He's saying, you should trust me. You should trust me. Now, this story is not written to convince us that have we enough faith in Jesus, every time we go through a difficulty, he'll still the storm. That's not true, is it? We know it's not. We know it's not. You only have to go on into the New Testament to see faithful gospel ministers going through tremendous suffering. No, that's not it. But it is assuring us that Jesus cares for us. He knows the situation. He calls us to trust him and hold on to him. He's with us in the storm. He hasn't abandoned us. And some of you here, I think the Lord wants to commend you tonight. You know, he knows what you're going through. And you could easily have just given up. You could easily have just said, forget it. But you're holding on by your fingertips. You're still here tonight. Still seeking to trust him. And I'm sure he would commend you for that. Because Jesus doesn't abandon us. He's with us in the darkest storms and will ultimately bring us through. I heard a great Methodist minister years ago in the church I grew up in in Leamington, Donald English. He was an evangelical. and He's written the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Mark. And I found this very helpful, this quote. We do not judge God's care for us, nor the state of our discipleship, by the roughness of the seas over which we sail. See, when the water gets choppy, either we think God doesn't care, or we imagine, I'm a rubbish Christian. This happens to rubbish Christians. No. No. It happens to those who are seeking to follow. Don't doubt your discipleship or his care simply by the conditions you're going through. Keep trusting Jesus. But is that the main thrust of this passage? Is that the main lesson of these verses? I don't think so. I think much more important tonight, the second question that the disciples ask. So we move on to verse 41. Who is this, they ask? Now, we're all familiar with the term mega, I think, aren't we? Everything's mega, mega stores, you know, these massive huge stores that stock every known commodity, um, huge floor spaces, mega, massive. Well, that word mega is a Greek word, and it's used three times in this passage. It's easy to spot that if you're using the ESV. We're not tonight, and that's, that's okay. The NIV is a great, great version. But in the ESV, it brings it out very clearly. If you look at that sometime, you'll find that in verse 37, there's the great windstorm. In verse 39, the great calm. But in verse 41, a great fear. Now, here's a surprise for us tonight. Here's the climax of this story. What might we have expected it to say as Jesus stills the storm? Great relief. Great joy. One person's put it, high fives all round. Fantastic. We're safe. Is that how the passage ends? They were terrified. These disciples are now terrified. Literally, they feared a great fear, more than they were terrified at the start. The wind and waves scared them witless, but now Jesus and what he's just done, well, fear, great fear. The climax of the passage, someone said, is not Jesus calming the fear of the disciples, but Jesus causing fear in the disciples, interestingly. Awe and wonder. 
Here's a challenge for us. When was the last time we were really overcome with awe and wonder at the person of Jesus? You know, it's, it's easy for us as good Bible Christians. We know Jesus. We've got it all sussed, haven't we? Have we? Has he lost any capacity to surprise and shock us? We've become so over-familiar, perhaps. I think there's a real challenge here. When the full majesty of Jesus is revealed, it induces fear, reverence, awe, and how we need that. But who is this, they say? Who is this? Well, let me suggest two things we can see from this account by considering first the Old Testament and then the position of this story in Mark's Gospel. So just two things. Who is this first? Well, we know, don't we, Jesus really is the Son of God. That's what this passage is telling us. Throughout the Old Testament, who is it that controls the sea, waves, wind? Who is it? God alone. Now, Matthew tells me it's about a year ago that you did Exodus 14, but um, something like that. The crossing of the Red Sea, remember? God's people coming out of Egypt. Pharaoh's army pursues them. They reach the edge of the sea. God says, go on, Moses, take them over. And the waters part. Amazing! God can do that. Only God can do that. At Mighton, we're studying the book of Joshua at the moment. It wasn't long ago that we saw a similar great miracle as the people now coming out of the wilderness to the promised land, the flood waters of Jordan are before them. And God says, go on, Joshua, take them over. The waters part. Again, the people go over in dry land. God does that. That's God in action, isn't it? I'm tempted to sing that. Is it a Colin Buchanan song? Some of you smile. You know the one I mean, don't you? Who is this man? Only God can... That's the point. Psalm 89, who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 89, 8 and 9. Uh, Joe Ritras from Psalm 107, an account of people caught up in a great tempest. And it's interesting reading the account of their, their, their courage melting away, reeling and staggering around in the storm. But they call to the Lord. What happens? He stills the storm to a whisper. The ways of the sea were hushed. God alone does that. But here is Jesus speaking two words to a raging storm and all is still. Conclusion? Pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus is truly God. Oh yes, he's truly human. He was asleep in the boat one moment. But truly God as he addresses a storm. Hush, quiet. The Son is the image of the invisible God, writes Paul to the Colossians, the firstborn over all creation. In him all things were created. Things in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, Jesus, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who is this? It's Almighty God before them in human flesh. Jesus. But let me suggest something else here. Jesus is also the promised restorer of all things. Now, you may think this is more fanciful. Challenge me afterwards. But I'm always struck by this sequence of miracles described by Mark. End of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. Four miracles. 
The world is not as it should be. Genesis 3 tells us that. Our first human pair took forbidden fruit and everything broke down. A relationship with God was fractured. relationship between each other, the creation, everything crumbles. The world is not as it should be. There are consequences for their rebellion. And one person, Mark Green, some of you might know that name, Mark Green, London Institute, puts it in terms of alienation. He's not the only one to do this, but look at this quote. It's a long quote. Hang on in there. Um, What happens when Adam and Eve reject God's truth is a fourfold alienation. The first from which all else flows is a decisive alienation from God, theological alienation. That leads to psychological alienation. Adam is no longer at peace with himself. If you you read Genesis 3, you can see all this. He he recognises he's now naked and is disturbed by that. The third level of alienation is sociological. Adam and Eve now feel shame, not just before God, but before one another. And finally, the fourth level, ecological alienation. The creation, um, toil, thorns, thistles. Now, why have I read that to you? Well, in the same chapter, Genesis 3, that describes this catalogue of disaster, there is a promise of one who will come, who will overturn all this brokenness and bring restoration again. There is that hope running through the Bible of new creation through this one. And these miracles here in Mark 4 and 5, I think are really interesting in regard to this fourfold alienation. Jesus stills a storm. A hostile creation, the natural order. Peace, be still. It's a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of what will come one day when the world is made new and all that is dangerous and hostile is no more. Jesus has authority over this storm. He's dealing with this ecological alienation, if you like. What's the next story in Mark 5? A man gripped by demonic powers disturbed in his mind, completely um, at his wit's end, running amongst the tombs. No one can master him. And Jesus delivers him with a word. And the villagers, when they see this man, Mark says, they see him dressed and in his right mind. See, that psychological disease. Jesus touches it. The next miracle, the healing of a woman subject to bleeding for 12 years. And nobody can heal her. And yet she comes and touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And here's the thing. It's almost embarrassing, isn't it? He calls her out. Come on, who touched me? Who was it? Make yourself known. Why does he do that? Well, because her bleeding has rendered her unclean. She hasn't had normal communal relationships for a long time. Yet now she is healed. She's, in a sense, restored to a right relationship with others, brought back into the heart of community again. Sociological alienation. And in that final miracle, the little girl, the synagogue ruler's daughter who lies dead, and Jesus says, little girl, up. Power over death, the ultimate alienation from God. You see, you, you may think I'm seeing too much here, but I just think it's amazing. These four miracles seem to touch every one of those areas that has been fractured and marred by the fall. Jesus is the great restorer. He's the, he's the, the last man, another second Adam, to put everything right. Who is this? the Son of God and the great restorer who will make all things new. What a wonder. Jesus. 
we'll ask again. I wonder whether we've lost that sense of wonder and awe at Jesus. The capacity to be surprised by him. If you're not a Christian here tonight, that's a great question to be asking. Who is this? Who is this? I pray that you'll come to see that he is God, the rescuer. And we may well ask then, well, how then is this Jesus going to put all things right that are foreshadowed in these miracles? What's he going to do to mend this broken world? What will it take? Well, let me take you to another instance where disciples are bemused by what Jesus does. They're confused by his reaction. It seems completely out of keeping. They didn't expect this. And it's in Mark 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Where Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Here's a surprise, because the disciples had never seen Jesus like this before, I'm sure. They hadn't witnessed his appearance change. The the look of horror, that sense of awe that Jesus was experiencing. His testimony, his words, my soul overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then you know he falls to the ground and prays that if possible the hour might pass him by. Uncharacteristic. They're seeing something in Jesus that is wholly new. Someone has said we encounter a saviour we're unfamiliar with. What we observe is foreign and frightening. Oh yes. Why? Because Jesus is about to face another storm. Far more terrible storm than one on the Sea of Galilee, isn't he? The storm of God's righteous anger against all that is broken, sinful and wrong. In the storm on Galilee, the disciples are fearful, but Jesus calmly sleeps. As now another storm is about to break in Gethsemane, Jesus now experiences I think it's right to say fear and terror because he appreciates the full awesome horror of what it will mean to enter the storm of God's wrath on the cross and to bear sin there for his people. Yet he voluntarily does that, enters into this storm for our sake. He doesn't still this storm with a word, but by an atoning death dies a sacrifice in our place for our sins. And on the third day, well, maybe even earlier, it is finished, says Jesus. He comes through the storm. It's finished. It's done. He's, as it were, assuaged God's justice and wrath against our sins. And as proof of that, he rises victoriously on the third day. And this is the amazing thing. We no no longer need to fear that storm if we belong to Jesus. He brought the disciples safe through the storm on Galilee. He can take us and bring us so that we do not have to face the storm of God's anger against our sin. If we trust him, if we lean on him, if we see what he did for us. What a saviour. Well, so much in this amazing account. But I hope you're encouraged. Jesus cares for you. 
in your storm. He's demonstrated his care more than anything in embracing that storm on the cross that we might know peace with God and a new creation one day. What a saviour. What a saviour.